the same thing for the non, and you know, this is the first time I've ever done two services back to back, so it's just kind of a weird feeling. Um, as Preston said, my name is uh, Brian Myers, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and get this out of the way because I know there's embarrassing pictures behind me because my uh, brother-in-law, Aaron Branson, a lot of you guys know him, and I apologize, um, has put pictures on there. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce my family. You guys are getting like the, the different version from the, the first service. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, so just be prepared. So... These are my, oh, they've rearranged them on me. These are my boys. Uh, we have twins. There'll be a year in March 1st. The one on the right is Briar. The one on the left is Rhett. Uh, this is how my life generally looks. There's another picture on there. There we go. Yeah. That's like three months. And he like, he was like, dude, he, he knows how to uh, bring a house down if he wants to. So that is Briar. Um, and then the rest of them kind of get embarrassing apparently from here. One I didn't even see, so I don't know what it is. Yes. There we go. Um, <laughs> I did volunteer with the Yoke at different points in times in my life. Uh, Yoke is a middle school ministry, and that was Superhero Club. Um, I don't know if there's anything like, I don't know if there's anything, yes, okay. Um, there was one of my cat, Gibbs, um, when I was going through my swaddling phase, learning how to swaddle babies, um, I swaddled my cat, so uh, there's, there was that one up there. So um, thank you, Rachel. My wife sent that to him. Um, now that I am not embarrassed because I really just, it doesn't really bother me. Um, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Um, again, I, I am Brian. It's already been said. Now I'm like really thrown off. Now I've got to like really get back on point here. Um, to kind of tell you about myself, obviously by the Batman picture, I'm a little different and I don't care. Um, as Preston already said and probably made you guys nervous, there may be people slipping out the back. Um, I tend to make people uncomfortable. Um, this one will probably make you uncomfortable, but, um, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say this on the onset, and I should have said this at the first service. Um, this is because I've wrestled with this stuff for like 11 years. Like, my journey in ministry started 11 years ago. Um, I grew up here. I've lived here for or all but four years of my life. The other four years, I lived in Knoxville and uh, worked and interned at different churches there, um, anywhere between like Carnes, Pellissippi area to Fulton. Uh, so I've kind of been around Knoxville and then here, but I grew up here, went to school here, um, went to White Pine for a little bit, and then I was homeschooled from sixth grade on uh, because I had anxiety problems. Uh, I had anxiety disorders, so I couldn't go to school. Uh, there's irony in that considering I'm sitting here talking to you. Um, and this like, went into the high school and stuff like that, so I was not one for like public speaking. I actually didn't really like people. Uh, no offense. Um, but uh, it's just kind of, it was just kind of how it was. So then God was like, hey, I want you to do something. I'm like, all right, God, whatever you want me to do. Isaiah chapter 6, you know, here I am, Lord, send me. I want you to preach. I'm like, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right, fine. I said I would do it. Um, and then, like, I have never had a traditional, like, type ministry, like, job. Um, I've been a youth pastor, stuff like that. But it's never really been, like, the traditional fit. And I've never fit in, like, the mold. Um, and that is okay. That took me a while to get used to because I used to think I had to look a certain way, act a certain way, do this, do that. Um, and, you know, excuse me, and I would be successful in ministry. And then I realized that God has wired me a certain way to make me a certain way. And as a result, I am who I am, and I've just learned to embrace that. And I love this. Uh, so I can just be who I am, and uh, I apologize for you guys because of that. So what we're going to talk about today is missional living. And I want to start by defining what I mean by missional. What I mean by missional is you live your life on God's mission or Jesus' mission every day of your life. It's not a church program. It's not something you can just program. Missional living is not like a, a program that you do at church because programs at churches are good. But missional living means that you live every day of your life where you, as the slogan is for Jefferson County, where you live, work, and play. You live for the mission of Jesus. You look at people 
through the lens of how Jesus looks at people. You live your life on mission all the time. That's what being missional is, or you look for the opportunities um, to be missional. And it's always about God's mission. It's not about our agendas, and I'll kind of talk about that a little bit later because I have stories about how I thought I had this figured out and then like how I completely blew it. So I like being the example of how not to do things. Um, so that's what I mean by missional, by you on God's mission. That's what I simply mean by missional. Nothing more really, nothing less. Um, because what happens is, um, especially in the Bible Belt and Knoxville and where I've been, what I've seen is, is that we have this expectation of church that we want people to come to us. Um, we talk about evangelism, discipleship, as inviting people to church. That's, that's kind of, that's honestly how we've been raised. That's, um, I went through seminary, through liberty, and that's almost, it's not directly the model they teach, but really all of our principles come from like church growth principles of like the, the 80s and 90s, and it's basically taught us to invite people to a building, and that's kind of where the expectation ends for us, um, unless you're, quote-unquote, a professional minister. And then it's, it's, you know, somebody else's job to take over discipleship, teaching, and blah, 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 fill in the blank. Somebody else's problem. That is a major problem considering, guess what? People just don't wake up now and go, you know what? <sighs> ah, been an alcoholic for 20 years. You know what? I think I'm gonna go to church today. Now you'll say, well, I heard of a case, you know, three years ago that happened. Exceptions happen. Jesus does what he wants. Rule of thumb, people are not waking up now going, I want to go to church. They just, they just don't. Most people view the church as archaic, out of date, out of touch of reality. And we've pretty much, even in the quote unquote Bible, we've been pushed to the, the, the side because we don't matter. We have nothing to offer. Um, and again, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that the first service probably didn't get the brunt of this. Like, I had a time frame now. Uh, I made a joke about Preston. He's, I think last week he said he has the longest sermon. I jokingly said I was going to try to beat it. I knew I couldn't in the first service because I, I had like a time frame I had to work in. You guys, I apologize. Uh, and it has, it has been like a year almost since I preached, so I am just sorry. Um, uh, I'm joking. Some of you are like getting more nervous now. Like, I'm leaving. Um, so, the idea of a building and having people come to us, really started with Constantine back in like 313, I think it was, he cited the Edict of Milan. Um, what happened was he signs this, makes Christianity no longer illegal. And the first, uh, the first service didn't get this. There's a quote up here by uh, two men, uh, Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch, and this is what they say. In virtually an instant, Christianity moved from being a marginalized, subversive, and persecuted movement secretly gathering in houses and catacombs to being the favorite religion in the empire. Like, overnight. But man, I don't think it was the best idea. Because what happened was, now all of a sudden you went from being this subversive, persecuted, marginalized group of people who were meeting in houses and were spreading over and taking over essentially the known world at the time, to what happened? Well, wasn't long, we started getting buildings. Lands that were taken from Christians during persecution were given back. We started building buildings. In fact, um, I can't remember which emperor it was. Uh, there were certain emperors that basically gave land to the church and said, hey, here's your, here's your prominent piece of land. Put your building there. And I don't necessarily know if Constantine meant this, but it was very smart because he took a movement that could not be contained because kill them, fine. Guess what? They keep going. You, you read in the very first book, of, you read in Acts, you talk about the church being persecuted. What did they say? They counted a privilege that they could suffer for the name of Christ, that they could even partake in his suffering. That was a privilege for them. So now all of a sudden, you've taken that, that group of people who are changing the world, 
being persecuted to give them prominence, give them a building, centralized, not a movement. You went from being movement, centralized. And that's how we've operated really since then. If you go to different, if you go to like Europe or if you go to different countries, um, what buildings are generally the biggest, nicest buildings, especially in small towns in like other countries? Churches. I've been into Mexico and I've seen like poor. I mean like the little hotel in I stayed at, like it was poor. The church building there, it was the Catholic church, but the building there, it was amazing. Because we went from a people, we, basically what we did is this. Centralized buildings say this. You come to where God is. Instead of before this, it was the people of God going to you. They were taking the gospel out. So we centralized it and basically removed the missional aspect of being a Christian. Now it became about uh, hierarchies, leadership. Um, you get like this huge... Uh, professional uh, clergy laity divide basically you have your religious elite you know with their degrees and blah 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 which really mean nothing um i've i'd much rather hang out people who uh, just love jesus and want to serve uh, than people who have phds and you know just like to talk about like you know how special they are um it was like this you know we have to tell people what to do and we 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 do ministry we do programs we do this and what does it got us i mean we have like the 80s, 90s taught us some of the best church growth principles. But what is the church doing? <whistles> Declining. Just, it's just going down. Well, why? Well, it's because we've lost our mission. We've lost really the message. And there's been kind of a discovery over it. It's really been going for a while, but there's been a discovery really of what the gospel is and what its implications are to our lives. So, again, we've moved from buildings we want people to come to learn about God. That's really what um, most of you probably expect. You, um, you have your lost friends that you kind of keep in contact with, but you keep the distance, but you invite them to church because you hope that Jimmy or the guest guy who's probably going to freak them out or press, you, you hope that one of us will be able to communicate the gospel enough to where that they'll become a believer. That's our expectation. I'm here to tell you that um, it's, not what, it's not what you're supposed to do. That's not the expectation. I know that's not the expectation here at True Life because I've talked with Pastor Jimmy. Um, like I said, moved to Knoxville, was there for four years, came back because I was broken for the county. I had no intentions of moving back to Jefferson County. None. And I, I can say this because I grew up here. Like it, for me, it was kind of like this black hole of like my ambition, my pride, what I wanted. It's what it felt like to me. Um, but like, I think it was like six years ago. So I can't remember what it was. I was still in seminary. I ran the numbers for Jefferson County because that's what geeks do when you get bored. You run numbers for the county. And I started adding up like from talking to different people, the gospel center churches in Jefferson County versus, you know, just the ones that are just struggling to get by. Um, they're just trying to keep their service going, but they're not, you know, they're not gospel driven. They're not making disciples because that's what we're here. I mean, I want you to understand this. As a missional person, your goal is to make disciples. That's, that's, you know, I guess I should have said that at the very beginning. I was defining my terms. But we're, we are, um, so I started running the numbers and found out that, like, even if you gave, like, all the churches in Jefferson County high numbers, like national average, and then padded with the churches that have higher numbers, like True Life and some of the other churches around here, I think you were hitting, like, 22%. And I know none of this really means anything to you. But, like, 22% of the population of Jefferson County was actually going to church. We're in the Bible Belt. Everybody goes to church here, right? No, 
20-something percent. It may be higher. I don't know. I haven't checked the numbers in six or seven years. Probably worse. That's all churches. Now I factored in only the, the, the churches where I've talked to pastors where gospel-centered churches are actually moving. You're dealing with about 5% of the population. We've been taught, and I've been taught, that we need to look at the larger cities because that's where more people live, and that's where, you know, obviously if we reach like New York and bigger cities, it'll trickle-down effect. I get the thinking, but we can't abandon the smaller cities, smaller counties, the rural areas, um, because the brokenness is here. There's churches on every corner around here. You drive through Jefferson City, church, 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 church. Why is it we have a huge drug epidemic? Why is it there's just tons of brokenness? Why? I mean, again, I know we're in a fallen world, and I know a lot of people like say, well, it's the end times and this and that. That's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. It's because we're not really doing our job, I think, as being believers. There's always going to be brokenness. Jesus himself even said there's always going to be, there's always going to be poverty. There's always, going to be, there's always going to be that until Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. But I think this is what we need to learn. We need, what we've done is, is when we made buildings the prominent thing and we kind of did this divide between clergy and then, you know, just regular common Christians, we've made this divide. Um, we really lost Jesus in all of this. We, we've, we've lost the central aspects of who Jesus is. We like to talk about his, his saving grace, his lordship. We talk about all these different aspects of who Jesus is and what he's actually done for us and what he can do for us. But the one thing I think the glaring missing point of, of what, we've, what we've left out is the fact of how Jesus lived his life. I mean, what, what, as the church, and again, I'm going to go ahead and say this, this, if, it, if we'd have showed up here this morning, you guys would have known beforehand because 9 o'clock service would have figured it out too. But if the pond in the back where I should give kayak lessons flooded and took everything out, what have we lost? Building. That's it. Church is still here. Body still functions. Would it, would it, be, would it stink? Yep. But guess what? Body's still here. Buildings don't matter. They can burn. They can be they, whatever you want. They can be closed down. They can be boarded up. Buildings don't matter. The church is the body. Who's the head of the body? There we go. So now, if Jesus is the head of the body, that means he's thinking for us, so that means that we should look at his life and try to figure out how we should live our lives, correct? Logical assumption. Okay. Now, and this is why some people get uncomfortable, here's what we're going to, we're going to look at what Jesus, um, how Jesus lived his life. And I'm going to ask really three questions. First one being this. I'm going to look at my notes because sometimes I just kind of get confused where I'm at. Why was Jesus here? Simple question. Why was he here? We, you know, he was here to save the lost. He was here for this. He was here. There's all sorts of right answers. But I want to look at how Jesus like, kind of started his ministry in Luke's account. So in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, we get this account. This is right before he's, like, he's, already, he's been tempted in the wilderness. He's came out. The spirit, you know, God's already given his seal of approval with the Spirit. And it says this. And he came to Nazareth, which was his hometown, where he'd been brought up. And I'm going to, um, one part's going to be a little bit different because I'm using the ESV and this is um, New King James. So bear with me, it'll be all right. Um, which he'd been brought up. And as his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday. And he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, again, this is kind of a little thing here, but can you imagine like having to have a scroll? I mean, 
I know, like, I, I, I scroll through my phone. Can you imagine, like, having to unroll this? I mean, he didn't, like, just pick up a book and go, Isaiah 61. No, he, he, they had to give him a scroll, had to unroll it, read through the whole thing. And they wrote pretty much, like, it was, like, one big run on sentence, what it would look like to us. He had to find, and he finds Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, this is a messianic passage. These are, in Isaiah, there's these things called servant songs, or uh, basically they're talking about the future Messiah. Uh, Isaiah 53, um, you know, he was waiting for our transgressions. That's one of the songs. This is another one. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He is God's anointed one to proclaim the good news or the gospel to the poor. Here's where it gets a little bit different. This will talk about brokenhearted, but it says, And he sent me to proclaim liberty to those who are captive. This talks about binding the brokenhearted. Uh, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, or the proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled it up, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, they would teach setting down. And after doing the first service, I am not really good at pacing myself. So if I sit down in here, don't be offended at that. Um, in fact, it's biblical, see? He said he sat down. Um, and all the eyes of everybody, they were fixed on him. Like, everybody was like, he, they, they knew, like, they understood this passage as being messianic. Let me go ahead and tell you what they thought, though. They thought what this text meant was is that the Messiah was going to come back, destroy the Roman Empire, and lay waste to any enemies of Israel, and basically set up Israel's kingdom, and Israel is going to be able to divvy out, you know, their, uh, you know, all their slights and stuff against them. They were going to pay them back. That's what they thought. And in fact, Isaiah 61, um, the, the song actually it goes a little bit further. And, and actually, it goes to verse 3 in Isaiah 61. He only reads the first couple of verses here, Jesus does. And he actually omits the second part of the, the, second, part of the second verse because it talks about the, the, the Lord's vengeance. He actually purposely omits the Lord's vengeance from this just to set up what, what Jesus' ministry is going to be. Everybody was fixed on him. And he began to say to them, now we're not getting the whole, his whole sermon here. We're just kind of getting a snapshot. But this is his opening line. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. You imagine that? You, yeah, you, you, just, you imagine that? You're, you're, you're sitting somewhere. You're a first century Jew. You're waiting for the Messiah. Every, Messiah or every Jewish person thought that the Messiah was going to come in their generation. It was like this imminent like, coming of the Messiah. So... <laughs> so they, uh, uh, they, they were expecting the Messiah. So this guy that they knew, because later on they'll say, is this not Joseph's son? He reads this. Like, put yourself in a first century, I know it's really hard because we're American, blah, 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 all this. Put yourself as a first century believer here. You're sitting in the synagogue on a Saturday. You're uh, an oppressed people. You have no rights. You have to basically ask the Roman Empire if you can do anything. Like, your temple's been destroyed, kind of built back, nowhere near as, like, as awesome as it was. Um, you, you want some vengeance. That's what you want. And now all of a sudden, some guy that you know, some Joseph's son, Jesus, walks in the temple, reads this messianic psalm, or this messianic text. They would have known it. Sets down and says, today it is fulfilled. They were happy. They were ecstatic. What does it say? It says he goes on. 
And all the people spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words. We don't get his whole sermon here, which would be really awesome if we did, but Luke doesn't give it to us. And they marveled at the words that he spoke. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And then he goes on. It's, I don't think this is up there, but he goes on. And he says, doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you've heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. When he says, physician, heal yourself, what he's saying is, is that Jesus heal Israel. He's not saying, Jesus, heal yourself. He's saying the physician is going to heal his own people and not worry about anybody else. Me, me, myself, you know, me and my four no more. That was what they thought. That's what they wanted. So, what, so Jesus says, That's, this is what you're going to say. Take care of Israel. I've already omitted the vengeance out of it. They're probably trying to figure that one out, but he stops. He says, look, you're going to say only take care of Israel. But here's the interest. Then he goes on. And how do you think this text ends? They're probably still happy with him, you know, hi, marveling at him. No, it actually ends with them putting him up on a cliff trying to throw him off of it. And he actually walks through the center of them. Um, he quotes to them two different things. He quotes from Elijah and he quotes from Elisha. Elijah is very ironic considering the fact that the first thing we get with Elijah is he tells King Ahab that it's not going to rain for three and a half years. If we could borrow him for a little bit, we'd be set because I'm, like, some of you probably swam here. Um, I live on a hill, and like last night, like 2.30 in the morning, I wake up, like I thought my house was going to like be blown away, and I'm looking down at 92 going, is it going to be a river? Because I was going to be like that guy riding the pink flamingo down Broadway in Knoxville. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, he quotes them Elijah and Elisha, and the two stories he tells from Elijah and Elisha are this. Elijah, when, he made the, when, when God used him to shut up the heavens for three and a half years, guess what happens? A drought. We know nothing of this. Um, a drought happens, crops start dying. This is, you know, this is, um, it didn't have the fancy, it didn't have all the technology. So drought, you know, plants start dying, this and that. Where does God send Elijah? Does he send him to an Israelite's house to be taken care of? The prophet of God? No, he's, first he starts off at a brook. Then he ends up in the land of Sidon, or Sidon in Zarephath. Interesting thing, um, not Israel, and he actually gets taken care of by a widow of Sidon who, um, if we know anything about, if you know anything about Old Testament, if you ever hear about the, the, the Queen Jezebel, Ahab's wife, she's considered like the most wicked person in the Bible, like the most wicked women in the Bible. Like if you read commentaries, what they'll say about her. Guess where she was from? Sidon. That's her home, that's her home area. God sends the prophet of Israel to a pagan land to be taken care of for this, for this, for the, you know, until he moves them on. Ooh, Israel would not have liked that. The, 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 the Jewish people, the first century, they would have, they would, they knew where he's going with this. And all of a sudden their, their temperature's going up. They're getting hot. So then he goes to Elisha and he says, you know, in all of, you know, in all of the times of Elisha, only one person was healed of leprosy because leprosy was a horrible disease back then. And you know, it made you ceremonial unclean. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. It was a horrible disease to have. One person during the time of Elisha was actually healed. His name was Naaman, actually. And guess what? He wasn't. He wasn't from Israel. He was a Syrian who actually ended up conquering Israel at one point in time. Now you kind of get where he's going. He's saying, look, you want, me to, you want me to heal just the Israelites. But he said, look, even in the Old Testament, he said the prophets, when they would go out, they were, they, were, they were going out to the Gentiles then. Jesus says, I'm here for all. He says, I'm here for the broken, the oppressed, the, 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 the captive, the blind. He says, I'm here for them. Now, 
it's at this point we start getting a little uncomfortable with Jesus. We're, we're kind of okay because we can kind of fit this into ministries and missions and stuff like that. We can go to another country where it's like really hard to live or we can go to a part of town. Like I did ministry in, um, in near Fulton High School. Um, so when I was there, it's become more of a hipster area now, um, sadly. Um, now, but when I was there, it was prostitutes, drug addicts. Like the church I was at, Sarah here, corner, prostitute every day. That's what life was. Um, different. Um, and in fact, while I was there, I can't remember what year it was, there was a police sting. And they arrested, I can't remember if it was like 20-something prostitutes one night. All up and down uh, Central and like uh, Central Avenue and all that, which is where the church was at, where I was at. I think 15 of them got a heightened charge because they were performing... I mean, they were, they were prostituting within, I think, like 100 feet of a church. Now, here's, what, here's, here's, the, here's the switch for us. Most people go, I cannot believe they don't even have the decency. I mean, what's wrong with people to, to prostitute themselves next to a church? And people were upset. Killed me. Killed me. Because they were sitting on the doorsteps of the church, and not one person was reaching them. Not one. They got a heightened charge. They got what they deserved is what most people thought. They were standing on our doorsteps broken. Like, I don't know how, like, most of them look like they were older and stuff. But, I mean, we look at sex trafficking. We look at this. We look, I mean, we, you look at the stats. You look at how people get into sex trafficking and prostitution. People are broken. I'm going to tell you, that's the people Jesus would hang out with. Now, all of a sudden, we're getting uncomfortable because, we like it when Jesus is like, you know, Savior, Lord, this, that. But when we start talking about hanging out with people who are not like us, who don't maybe dress like us, smell like us, vote like us. That's a big one around here, vote like us. Um, we, we start looking at this, um, but we, we, start deal, we start dealing with this and we're like, like, Jesus does everything counter to what we do. Um, let me read another verse. Uh, John 1.14 and this is a very rich verse, and you could spend like hours talking about what the incarnation is. And I'll read it real quick. John 1, 14. Actually, if I can find it on here, it says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We could spend all day talking about what the incarnation means. I mean, the fact that, you know, God himself put on human flesh. He lived, he breathed, he ate, he got tired. He slept. God himself did that. While he was running the entire universe, as Hebrews chapter 1 says, he was asleep on a boat. While he was hanging on a cross, the world span along. And if you read Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about the fact that he holds the world together by the word of his awesome power. Basically what it means is Jesus the whole time is running everything to the exact point to where God the Father wants it. Did all of that while here on earth, in human flesh. A lot of theological implications to that. Practical ones, though. The message has it rendered as this, which is more like a commentary on Scripture. It says, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Think about that. I mean, we all have, I mean, we all have neighbors. Some of you may live like, like more rural where you have like, like my grandparents, where your neighbors are not as close. But we have our neighbors, we know them and stuff like that. Imagine God moved into your neighborhood. I mean, think about this. Jesus, God himself at one point in time, kind of had an address. 
you know, Nazareth, you know, you know, his, you know, Joseph had the, you know, he was a carpenter and all. I mean, he, he had a physical address at one point in time, lived among people. In fact, if you actually look at Jesus, he spent most of his time as an itinerant preacher and he was homeless. Mm. We talked about wanting to be like Jesus. We don't want to go down that road because American Dream says, have a nice car, have your house, have your dogs. I mean, raise your family. Don't do anything wrong. Don't cheat on your time. I mean, you fill in the blank. There's a lot of things that the American dream can be copped up to, but when we start looking at Jesus, he starts rubbing against those pretty rough. Because Jesus would have spent most of his time with the broken, the prostitute. He, was, he, probably, wouldn't have done, he probably wouldn't have went to any church in North Knoxville at any point in time and would have spent most of his time on the corners talking to the drug addicts and the prostitutes. And as I asked the first, asked the first service towards the end, I'll ask you guys right now, um, who did Jesus make mad 90% of the time? Religious people, especially the religious elite, he would rub them the wrong way all the time. Who loved to be in the presence of Jesus? Who would come after him? Sinners. He would, he would correct their sin. Now, what I'm, not, I'm not saying that we just ignore sin, blah, blah, blah. But Jesus, God himself, moved into our world. He moved into our domain. The world that he created, that we broke, he moves into our world to live with us, to eat with us, to save us. He spent the vast majority of his time with people who we would never spend our time with. Uh, two stories for this. Uh, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. You guys have probably heard this, but again, she was a Samaritan, so therefore they didn't like him because they considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds because of when the Assyrians came in and took over the northern empire of Israel when it was divided. Um, so hated them, didn't want anything to do with them. So Jesus said, we need to go through Samaria. So he goes through there. So he ends up at a well. Disciples go to get food. What happens? A woman shows up sometime around noon. Again, you guys heard the story probably. If you haven't, what, this woman shows up about noon to go get some water from the well. You don't do that because guess what? In the, in the Middle East at noon, guess what it is? Hot. You don't go to get water at noon. You go early in the morning. So... And we learned later on that she had five husbands, and the guy she was living with was not her own. And even in American standards, we're kind of like, ooh, man. I mean, that's, you're getting kind of, you're, you're getting kind of really sinful for me here, even in American standards. Um, so Jesus, what does he do? He talks to her. So now, again, we have to, we have to break a cultural barrier here. First century women, and I, you know, she, this is just how, this is what it was in the first century. First, first century women were essentially viewed as property. They could not testify in court. They had no rights whatsoever. And again, they were pretty much like, kind of, it was like a barter system, bought and paid for, dowries and all that. I mean, they had no rights whatsoever. So this Jewish man talks to a Samaritan woman, completely scandalous. I mean, like, you can't, we can't really grasp how scandalous this is because there's just so many cultural barriers. But just, just understand this. It was not the norm. So what's he do? He talks to her. She goes and tells the village, she tells the village, hey, look, there's this guy. He told me all the things I've ever done. And they come out and then, you know, all these Samaritans believe, which was, again, not, you know, what Israel probably wanted. They wanted them dead because they were a, a reminder of a past time of defeat. So, again, Jesus talks to a woman. Uh, not a really good lifestyle choice. Completely countercultural to there. My favorite one is the account in Luke chapter 7, I believe it is where, I'm sorry I keep doing this, I'm like, I'm like dying up here, I apologize. 
I don't like pace myself well, so I'm like just trying to just make it through. Um, Luke chapter 7, Luke tells us this. Jesus was at a Pharisee's house. There we have our religious elite. So I don't know, you can like it or whatever, but he's at this, this Pharisee's house. And he comes in and he sits down and reclines at his table. So the table's like low to the ground and they would kind of like lay on pillows and stuff. Um, again, I know first century we don't understand this, but just kind of understand what's going on. So word got out that Jesus was at this, one, at this guy's house. A woman who we know as a sinner. That's how Luke describes her. She was a sinner. So probably, odds are she's probably a prostitute. For, found out that Jesus was at this guy's house, goes into a party. It'd be like backyard barbecue kind of thing for us, kind of thing. Goes into a party. She was not invited. Finds Jesus, goes over to him, breaks a jar of oil, puts it on his feet, and then starts washing his feet with her tears and her hair. Now, even that, that's it's weird. It's hard for us to grasp really what's going on here. And there's a whole lot of symbolism going on in here and a whole lot of stuff going on. But understand this. This would, this was like probably like stoning offense right here. I mean, like you just don't do it. You don't go into a Pharisee's house because this woman's unclean. I mean, the, script, the scriptures call her, they just call her a sinner. That's all we know of her as in Luke's account. He goes into a Pharisee's house. So the unclean goes into what is considered the clean house and washes God's feet with her tears. So what do the religious people do? What any religious person would do when some prostitute comes into their house and starts messing with one of their guests, they get all indignant and all, you know, they're all like, I can't believe Jesus is talking to her. I can't believe you do this. I can't believe that. What would we do? I mean, this is going to sound kind of weird. Imagine you're out like with your pastor. And again, I realize that we're talking, you know, Jesus ministry and we're trying to translate back to us because Jesus is perfect and we're not. But imagine you're out and like with your pastor and um, somebody walks by and, you know, especially when we're out where I was at, a prostitute walks up to your pastor and starts talking to him. That might get awkward because we're all thinking, oh, I have all these different things that would be going through our head. Or he could just, you know, be, you know, sharing the love of Christ with him because nobody else did in that area. We would be really quick to judge. Or it's just how we, how, I remember being told once when I was younger in ministry, I grew up in fundamental Baptist, which basically means that all truth, no grace really. Like, um, if you showed up in shorts, you're getting kicked out. Uh, I was told this. Um, I started a ministry in that. And then this has kind of been like a 11-year journey for me. Um, I was told once that I needed to be careful because if I was like at Cracker Barrel, I didn't need to order a, a root beer. I don't like root beer, so it's not even a problem for me. I know some of you probably hate me already, but it's fine. We can still be friends. Um, uh, not to order a root beer because what does root beer come in at Cracker Barrel? A glass bottle. What could somebody think I'm doing at Cracker Barrel? Oh, having a root beer. Yeah, I could see you, you're, you're, you're with it because... See, because they're like, well, somebody could think you're drinking a beer. I'm like, first off, Cracker Barrel doesn't even serve beer. And I mean, th that's what people, like, we, we, we insulate ourselves so well. And I, and I get having a good reputation. Scripture talks about having a good reputation. But I think we've put our reputation to the point where we're just so afraid to associate ourselves with sinners. I think, I think that's real. Jesus didn't. He, like, unanimously, we agree. He spent his time with sinners. We don't. 
We teach our kids. I was a horrible student pastor because I would teach my kids to have sinners that are friends. Because I realized there's always that they, they could be dragged into it. I realize that. That's why you disciple them. Give them tools. Walk through life with them. Guess what? Your kids are going to mess up. But isolating them is not going to really help. Because they're going to eventually be exposed to the world, to the brokenness, to the, just the crazy mixed up thing that we call you know, America now. I mean, it's just crazy what goes on here every day. I don't watch the news because it makes me depressed. But when I do occasionally catch it at my grandparents, it's like, big deep breath, don't, you know, don't hyperventilate. So uh, we, we just, we insulate them. But I would tell them, like, look, have friends that are lost. Because they're not going to probably come here to hear me. They're going to hear you way before they hear me. Um, if people, again, if people ask me to disciple somebody for them, I will tell them, no. Not my job. Yours. You have somebody who wants to be discipled, guess what? I'll give you some tools, but you do it. Because that's what you're called to do. You're called to make disciples. Um, one more scripture real quick. John 20, 21. And there is some like, I'm kind of stretching this a little bit. And I'll go ahead and admit, I'm kind of stretching this a little bit. Um, because the immediate context is not Luke, and it's not, it's technically John, yes, but not Luke. But listen to this. We read over this sometimes. John 20, 21 says this. This is Jesus after he's been crucified, he's resurrected, he appears to the disciples. I think this is for the first time he appears to the disciples, and he says this. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. That's because the guy they thought was dead is all of a sudden standing in front of them in a room that was locked. He said, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Catch this. As the Father sent me, so I also send. Mm. Now, in the context, what he's talking about is, as God the Father sent him in the power of the Spirit and in the obedience of, the, you know, of following the Father's wishes, the Father's mission, he did that. And that's what he's sending us to do. So, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that we are supposed to live like Jesus. In fact, uh, commentaries will tell you, like D.A. Carson, different people on their, on their interpretation of this, basically summarize it as this. We are to continue Jesus' mission. That's Christianity in a nutshell, right there. You want to know what your job is? Continue what Jesus was doing. We make it really difficult. We make it super highly programmed, um, hard for people to get in at times. We make it where they have to come to... And here's, here's the thing about inviting people sometimes to church. Um, we ask them to do all the work. Um, let me get a little teach you for you real quick, but I think, I think this is going to help you understand this. Imagine a line. You have M0, which is, or actually we'll call it B, barriers to the gospel, zero. They are, grew up in church, blah, 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 blah. They, they already kind of get it, but they're not believers. There's not that many barriers. You start going down. You have, you know, level one, level two, level three, level four. The further you get down the line, there's more barriers. So if you say the furthest end, you could say um, somebody from, um, who, from Islam. There's a lot of barriers to overcome. Watch this. Hey, you want to come to church with me? They have to come here, sit, and do all the work to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. They have to cipher through all the information. They have to be able to go through all of the things that are counter to what Islam teaches, and they have to work through it. By themselves, generally. That's what we ask, that's generally what we ask people to do. What does Jesus do? Jesus went to where people were, he spent time with them, and invested in them. If you want to reach people, you better be willing to do the work. 
you better be willing to wade into the brokenness that is people's lives. Um, and you do it wherever. You don't have to. It's not a ministry. It's, you just do it wherever you're at. I, go to, I like going to the gym. You probably can't tell, especially if I turn sideways. But I like going to the gym. Um, and it's funny how I'm like more of a... Yeah, so you, that's, that's really hurtful to my feelings. Um, <laughs> the gym I go to, I mean, it's, it's like a regular gym. It's down in, ta- it's down in Alpha. And um, I'm not like a super out there person. I'm more introverted. It's my personality. But you'd be surprised how much you learn about people if you just actually just be friendly. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised to hear who's having marital problems or going through a divorce or struggling to figure out what it looks like to date in the, you know, in the times we are now and um, what it means to actually like be a man or do this or do that. I mean, the questions are, I mean, you, you just hear it just by listening. And guess what? You get opportunities to speak into people's lives. Sometimes you actually may kind of click with them. I usually click with people that are a little bit different because I am. Um, what do you do? Well, you invest your time and money in them. Maybe invite them to go out and have lunch. Just talk to them. Get to know them. Don't start with turn or burn, which is my fundamentals days right there. You know, hey, turn or burn is what you're going to do. I mean, that's how we would start conversations. Here's a, here's a good question. Tell me about yourself. I mean, Jesus already knew everything about everybody. The woman at the well. well. How did he start with her? Hey, go get your husband. Well, he already knew she already had five and she was living with a guy. But what did he do? He started with who she was. Start with that. Learn about people. Make connections. Learn. You, it's, it's crazy how many connections you have with people who just maybe don't think you would. And then you go from there and you build relationships and you speak gospel truth into their lives. And it takes time. Um, it, it's not easy. And, it, and in fact, if you're expecting to have instant results and always be successful, again, please read the gospels and you will learn that um, Jesus himself actually sent most of the crowds away very angry. So don't hold yourself to a really high standard because the Savior of the world would generally make people mad because he would speak to their needs, he would meet their needs at times, and then he would tell them the truth. The rich young ruler. I mean, come on, man. I mean, you have a guy come to your church who's super loaded. What do we do? He's like, hey, I've done my best to keep the commandments. Well, all you need to do is say the sinner's prayer and you're in. Make sure you hit the tithing box in the back. That's, I mean, that's kind of that's how, how we operate sometimes as, as believers. What does Jesus do? Sell it all. He knew that there was a more important God than Jesus. Sell it all. Think about that. We would have been like ecstatic to have this guy. Jesus says, sell it all. And what does he do? Goes away sad. You're not responsible for the outcomes in people's lives. You're not. I am not responsible for the outcomes of people's. I'm responsible for being faithful and obedient and working in the power of the Spirit. And that's what you're, what you're supposed to be doing. So here is kind of the, here's the thing. When we get uncomfortable, we remold Jesus. I think I've already said this. So I'm going to kind of burn through this. We remold him. We make him like us. If I don't want to reach people who are different than me, I make Jesus look more like me. So what do we do? Evangelical world, we make Jesus uh, middle class, uh, you know, again, golden retriever, all that kind of stuff. We make him look like us because Jesus who looks like us doesn't require much of us. Here's the thing. We never mold Jesus into our image. That's idolatry, sinfulness. We never mold him into our image. We are to be taken by him and molded into his image. 
not our image. We're to be made in His image. So, three things for you. You may be here, and you're the person who's sitting in church, or maybe this is your first time, and you have the typical understanding that, you know, it's awesome that there's a God who loves us, that He came here and lived among us. He died for us, um, but He could not love me because fill in the blank. I'm too sinful. I'm too this. I'm too that. Uh, Fill it in personally for yourself. Be thinking it. Here's the thing. Jesus came for you, most importantly, actually. What did he say? I came for the broken heart of the oppressed. I came for those who were blinded. He's talking spiritual blindness. The ones who cannot see him, I came for them. So you may be sitting here thinking that there is no way God could love you, and I'm telling you that he put on flesh to come look for you. And now that he's in heaven, he has sent the body because we continue his mission, and we are to be looking for you. And here's the thing. He already knows who you are, and he's already searching you down. Because you don't come to him by happenstance and stumble into Jesus. Jesus is already looking for you and already found you. So if you think that there is no possible way that Jesus can love you, I'm here to tell you that the gospel says that he does, and he'll never stop. And he's pursuing you, and that he's looking for you. Second group is where I find myself at times. I'm not comfortable with who Jesus is. I'm not. Because it requires something of me that at times I'm not willing to give up. Um, Here's what I like to do. I like to make projects. You give me a task, I will complete it. Uh, Next door neighbor was struggling to get his tire off. I went to go help him. My goal was to assert my man card and be like, I can get this tire off in a few minutes. Like it was rust welded. It was bad. Um, but I was going to go out there, pop it loose because I had a cheater bar and I could do it. Um, this started at like 9 in the morning. What ended with me driving him to Knoxville to work because I couldn't get all of them off. And then when I would get one of them off, it would get stuck in the socket and I had to learn a little trick. And then it ended with me calling a mechanic friend of mine to figure out how to get the tire off because it was like welded onto it. And that ended with a sledgehammer. And you, some of you are thinking, that probably doesn't work. That's what a mechanic told me to do. Um, here's the thing. If I would have went out there and in 20 minutes changed this tire, which probably shouldn't have taken me that long. Guess what I've learned about my neighbor? About exactly what I knew about him. He's younger, he's married, got two kids. Because I had to ride 30 minutes and swallow my pride with him to take him to work because he couldn't get there and he needed to get to work, guess what I learned about him? A whole lot. Stuff I did not know. I learned about other believers around here that I need to talk to and stuff like that. I learned all sorts of stuff because ministry, or not ministry, missional living is not, he's a believer, you know, from his testimony. Missional living is not about competing projects. People are not projects. It's building community, building relationships. And again, like I said, I tell you that story to show you that I, I don't do it all the time and I don't get it. I struggle because it is counter, because we like to do the same thing over and over again and try to get the different results when we just need to be more like Jesus and that's countercultural and we start down new paths and it's different. Some of you are here and you're uncomfortable with who Jesus is. You're uncomfortable with the idea of um, soiling your reputation. I mean, that's, that's honestly like, that's how ministry started for me was being very careful with my reputation. And I get the importance of a good reputation, but some of us have taken the fact that if you're in the room with a sinner, it rubs off. It's like you breathe it in. It's not how it works. Because Jesus spent his entire time mostly with sinners. And a group of men that, he, I mean, you look at his disciples, relig- or national fanatics. You know, when it says, you know, so-and-so the zealot, that means he was like an Israelite who was fanatic for Israel. 
ooh, I mean, tax collectors, this, you know, the broken. So he spent his time with, uncomfortable. Here's what we have to do. We have to dive back into the Gospels, dive into how the New Testament teaches us to really to live, and we have to repent. Because we have to acknowledge the fact we've got it wrong, and we've more or less molded Jesus to how we want him to look. We've cleaned him up. We've moved to the side the things we like to talk about. We like to talk about these texts. We love the woman at the well, but the full implications of how that applies to us, we like to kind of keep to the wayside. So we have to repent. And then the third group, there are some of you here that have been doing missional living for years. You, you may not call it that, and I don't care. That's just a term that, we, that, that I use to describe it. You've been doing it for years, and you're tired because sometimes it can get lonely because when you wade into brokenness, it, it just rubs off on you. Like you're essentially giving your time yourself to other people, and it because you can invest your you can invest years in people, and it just never really works out like you wanted to. But again, if that's what God's called you to do, you're just called to be faithful. You're not called to make the results; you're called to be faithful. And here's what I would like you to do: if you're here and you've been struggling with that because you've been pouring into people and investing in people, find a group of people around here that you know that you love, and have them pray for you and start praying. Because again, church not building, church people. What is the people? It's supposed to be community. What is community? It's love, friendships, it's support, it's devotion, it's, it's this unity that we have to really get back to because when we make church about buildings and just showing up and checking the box, it's a hey, hi, bye. I mean, if you guys see, I mean, the first service wouldn't get this. You guys will. You guys see me most Sundays coming in at about 1040 trying to find a spot to sit. I'm that guy. You're the, you're the ones going, man, he's got set in front of me. Now I can't see the screen. I'm that guy because I'm usually coming in here late. Um, that's just kind of how life goes for me with twins and my wife. Um, I mean, but you, you, get, you get bogged down and you need community. You guys, you need to build a community. You need to have that core. If you, it's a life group or whatever, you have to have community. Because here's the thing. If you don't have community, you won't make it. You cannot do missional living alone. You'll drown. It's meant to be done in community and done through the power of the Spirit. That's why we have the body. The body is for the equipping of saints. It's for the preparing of, it's, it's for sending those out to ministry. That's what it's here for. So if you're here and you're just tired, um, get a group of people to pray for you. I'll be down here um, as we get ready for an invitation. We'll, um, I'll be down here. I'll pray for you. But I'd like you just to find people that you know that already kind of know your struggles and they're praying for you or find a group, make a group. Um, if you're wanting to disciple somebody, just do it. Like, there is, like, no cookie-cutter way to do discipleship. If you want tools and stuff, you can ask me up here. You can ask Jimmy. He's got tools for it. There's many ways you can do it. But really, we just have to just start doing it. Like, you're kind of trudging new, new land here because we haven't been doing this necessarily at times. So you're actually starting a new path. So I'm going to pray. And then uh, if anybody wants to come forward, you can come up here and find me or um, any of the other leaders here. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your gospel for the fact that it teaches us that you came for those who are broken, the oppressed, the ones who are on the sidelines, the ones who we don't think of, the ones who we cast judgment on, Lord. Um, I'm thankful for that, that you sought them out, that you sought me out, Lord. I pray that you would um, just be working in people's hearts here, Lord. Those who don't know you, I pray that your spirit ought to be working in them, Lord, and just be drawing them to you, and that they would come, and that they would follow you. That they wouldn't make just a one-time decision, but they would commit to just follow you for the rest of their life. Lord, those who have molded you into their image, Father, I pray that they would repent, and that they would be molded into the image of your Son. 
And Father, those who have been living the life of just living like you and they're tired, Lord, I pray that you would give them rest and peace and that you would uh, surround them by people to hold them up and to give them strength and that your spirit would be giving them strength and support, Father. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.